Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On. Crime Writers On is the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, for years, one of the world's biggest pop stars was held captive to a conservatorship, which controlled her money and her life. What was inside those secret documents? We'll discuss Britney versus Spears from Netflix. Plus, a young Portland activist was killed during an Antifa protest. Have the police let the case go unsolved because of his politics? We'll review the podcast Fault Line, Dying for a Fight. Joining me to get that done and more is true crime author, TV journalist, and host of These Are Their Stories podcast, my husband, true crime author, and love of my life, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Rebecca. Thanks for letting me ride your coattails. Also with us is private investigator, certified pet detective, resident cat lady, and author of the best-selling Dead on Deadline, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello, Rebecca. Yes, I'm holding on to that title for one more week in Exeter. Very exciting. Let's hope Congratulations. it Congratulations. We're just yes. going with the word best-selling. We don't have to give any context. Best-selling, <laughs> yes. Stop ruining it. Kevin and I, we used to call our books best-selling. We were best-selling in a very specific category on Amazon. Yeah. We just went best-selling. No mm-hmm. reason not to, right? Yeah. It sold better than others. Exactly. It was best. <laughs> it was better selling. Better it was selling. best in a lane. It was yeah. best in a lane that counts. And finally, our captain of woke cynicism, the author of the City Trilogy of Novels, which were probably actually best selling, nope. host of the Strange Arrivals <laughs> podcast, and the host of our Patreon Deep Dive Book Club podcast, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. Toby, you were best selling though, right? Yeah. Uh, it had to be a pretty obscure... <laughs> I think I, I, I might have I might have been best selling in our bookstore the day I gave a talk there. Yeah. Nice, nice. Good job. But you Toby. were well reviewed, so that yeah. counts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we should just get right to it. What do you think, Kevin? Well, I think that's what the people want. That is what the people want. They're <laughs> clamoring for it. They don't want any <laughs> Nelly, Nikki, Nelly, no chit chatty. No, nothing. let's just no get chit chat. Oh my god. Let's gosh. just get right to it. Let's get right to it. Hey, Leading- Kevin wants to be out of here by the eighth inning. That's uh <laughs> Yeah. I think by the time that this uh, this episode drops, the Red Sox might already be eliminated. So, it's, oh my gosh, we'll see. <laughs> Just one thing: those sad people who like 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 stopped their wedding for that Patriots game situation. That was so sad, 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 sad. And guess what? They lost anyway. Sorry, wedding people. Sorry. All right. <laughs> Leading my buddy off. Rocky's going to game two in Tampa. <laughs> oh, he is. Yeah. By the time this drops, this is all going to be irrelevant, right? All going to be irrelevant, all this sports ball talk? To you, Rebecca, it's already irrelevant. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's irrelevant the moment it left my lips. Yeah. <laughs> Leading off 
Two years ago, I began making a movie about Britney Spears with journalist Jenny Alescu. The movie was going to be about her artistry and the media portrayal. And can someone say wow to those dance moves? But the story was also about power and control, full of conspiracy and rumors, and no one would talk until they did. She was a mega music star and a favorite of the paparazzi. But after a series of very public meltdowns, Britney Spears' parents and management team went to court to secure control of her fortune and her rocky life. We have very particular standards for conservatorship. You have to be unable to meet your needs for food, clothing, health, and shelter. So let me put it this way. I've represented dozens of conservatees in court. Not one of them has ever had a job. The conservatorship allowed others to micromanage Spears' personal life and professional career, and a legal process designed to protect the elderly and infirm was used to control a celebrity who continued to make millions for those holding the reins. They can enter and take possession of her house, kick people out. They can issue restraining orders and employ security guards. They can use Britney's money to pay attorneys for legal matters involving the estate, hire people for just about any position necessary and pay them using funds from the estate. In the Netflix documentary, Britney vs. Spears, director Aaron Lee Carr reveals the undisclosed legal documents which trace how the singer's father and a gaggle of lawyers leverage the system to restrict her agency and make themselves rich. We're also introduced to the many outsiders Britney sought help from to get out of the conservatorship and control her own destiny. Now, spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from Britney vs. Spears. So to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to get our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. Now, Kevin, what's interesting to me is that Erin Lee Carr has said this was not the documentary she started out making. Mm -hmm. And she starts the film in a way that I really like. Like, she starts it saying... I was a fan, and it's clear that this wasn't the film she started out making because it was it was sort of going to be about the conservatorship as it stood and her fandom of Britney, right? It was going to be like from a different point of view initially is what you heard about, right? Well, that's why you do the news gathering because you don't know what you're going to turn up. And yeah. along the way, as we learned, they bumped into somebody who wanted to share some confidential information with them, and they got a treasure trove of documents which became the basis not only for the narrative part of the news gathering for the documentary, but also made a big part of how it was presented. You know, we see this an awful lot uh, in different podcasts where we have the producer debrief in the studio. This is the point where, you know, you bring in the host and somebody they work with on their team and they talk about, well, what do you have? And sort of that thing. And Aaron ends up doing this with uh, Jenny Elusco. Elusco, I think her name is pronounced. They're walking us through what some of the documents are. Uh, so instead of it being an hour and a half of graphics of typewritten passages, they're able to bring us into it a little better. They don't even know yet if she's going to be like okay to tour, right. but they're adding more dates. Right. There went from temporary conservatorship to permanent conservatorship and circus was that year. It's really interesting to me, Toby, to talk about a pop star, right? Because I know that you're not like super into pop music and it sounds like Jenny Aliskew, the writer, that wasn't necessarily her bag either, but she had been assigned to cover Britney Spears before and she had found her to be like a dynamic and interesting person. And so she'd come in contact with her many, many times, had written about her many times and she felt like she knew her. And then when this conservatorship happened, before she became a participant, 
in the story, she saw this notable change in terms of access that like everything changed. And it's really interesting to me the way this tool was used as we find out because Britney Spears clearly wasn't suffering from dementia, but that was the word that was used. Like, what do you think of that? How, how this was framed, just how the words were used in these documents, just like period. So I guess there's a couple of things going on here. One of which is, you know, the question about was, did she really have a mental illness of some sort? And again, like I was not paying a ton of attention to this, but it did seem, and they didn't go into this in the documentary, but there was a, she like shaved her head. You know, it seemed like there's like these things that she was doing that were sort of counter to her public image or whatever. So there's a question about what's going on with her. It seemed pretty clear that it it probably wasn't dementia at that yeah. age, particularly I think the, the fact that she's doing stuff seemed clear, right? Like that all this other clear. stuff, yeah. right? So yeah, again, not dementia, and so then it's like, why is it being sort of put forward that way? And it seems to be because that's the way you get to put somebody in conservatorship and mm-hmm. get control over their lives and their money and all this stuff. So it seems. You know, you don't really get a whole lot of like counter arguments in this. Like, there's nobody really making the case for why this was appropriate, which I would be interested in hearing somebody try and make that case. But you do, it does come away with it's just a way for her father in particular, Jamie, but also this little cadre of people he's got around him to kind of control her life, control her finances. And I guess with the end of getting himself rich, although I'm not really sure why he needed to do that in order to be as wealthy as he wanted to be. Hmm. Laura, what did you think of the frame of the conservatorship? Because it does seem to me like one of those weird Hollywood things. Like they take a thing that regular people use for one thing and they use it for an entirely different thing because it's Hollywood and Hollywood is super fucking weird. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it was like something that you're listening to and you're like, this doesn't even seem like it should be real. And then I'm like, it actually sounds more like they're structuring like a business entity and finding a way to find like a tax loophole. You know, it, I mean, it doesn't sound like a legitimate exactly. family That's court exactly sort of situation. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But I'm used to that sort of, you know, that that crazy, like, you know, don't you all read the, well, Toby doesn't, but the magazines when you're at the nail salon with all like this access Hollywood, like sensational mm-hmm. So it was interesting to see in this documentary a little bit more nuanced and human approach that wasn't so like trashy spread. Do you know what I mean? Like showing kind of a different side. Yeah. Kevin, I thought the documentary treated Britney with a lot of dignity, which I really appreciated. So Erin Lee Carr clearly is a fan. She clearly knows that most people, I mean, I don't think Toby necessarily followed Britney career, Britney's career as closely <laughs> like as I did, for instance. To- sorry, Toby, I'm making assumptions about you and your pop culture knowledge, because I know you. I've known you for a long time. But I'm assuming uh. that you did not, for instance, follow <laughs> Britney's career as closely as I did. I'm assuming that you're not as huge a fan of Toxic, for example, as I am. Uh, but I love she- that song. Yes, I know that you love that song just as much as I do. But I'm assuming that uh, she thinks that, you know, most of us kind of saw the lowest of the low, right? And we didn't need to see the head shaving scene to know that that existed. And we didn't need to see, you know, remember when Brittany gained a bunch of weight and there were a bunch of photos about it. I mean, she didn't gain a bunch of weight. There was just a bunch of unflattering photos of her pur- like, published mm-hmm. on purpose, like, as you know, that paparazzi yeah. does. Um, so I thought she was treated with a tremendous amount of dignity. Um, the documentary, I think, does not try to diagnose her with whatever it was uh, is clearly going on with her. I mean, I don't want to diagnose her either, but there is, I think, 
in my opinion, a mental illness situation. I think that's pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah. like a bipolar or a depression or anxiety, something. Yeah. It is not dementia. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. And we have to talk about that doctor, Dr. Spar, oh, who, says who he, apparently signed off on it. But yes, says, because he is the voice that could have spoken in favor of this. He is the voice that speaks in favor of conservatorships and what they are used for. But then he cannot technically say he diagnosed Brittany, but he does actually say he kind of does say he did. I'm not going to verify that I was ever brought in to evaluate Brittany Spears. So here is a court document said, uh, according to Dr. Spar's declaration. Okay, again, show me my signed declaration. So the question about, okay, is this dementia? And well, we all know that isn't. Then why is it marked off on the form? It, it te- it's one of two things, or maybe it's both things. It's either that the father, Jamie Spears, and or the lawyers wanted to go nuclear in order to make this conservatorship happen, that there are probably other options within the legal system or within entertainment law that somebody else could come along and be a trustee of both Britney's career, her estate, and Britney's personal life, you know, to some extent. This conservatorship, obviously, when you look at the, the thing, it clicked with me when you look at the form, and there's a checkbox for dementia, that this system is not built for a 20-something with emotional issues. It's, it's, it is built primarily for elderly people with a, a memory disease like dementia or something like that, or people who have some other kind of debilitating neurological or psychological issue where they can't take care of themselves. Or they might be grifted. Right. So the fact that they have to check the dementia box and not another box that says severely depressed or bipolar or whatever else that might be more appropriate tells me either they wanted to go nuclear or just that the system here is not built for somebody like Brittany. And so it was misused in this place. It wasn't just like, we're not just going to put our, our foot on the gas and go as hard as we can. We're going to make shit up as we go along. Yeah. I mean, uh, clearly conservatorship is meant for people to not be able to be grifted. I mean, that's what it's meant for. It's like it's like yeah. my rich dad. <laughs> for other people. To, yeah, yeah, it's right. like my rich dad who can't make decisions is likely to let his housekeeper suddenly take over his entire house and start driving his cars and steal all of his money. So I don't want that to happen, right? There's also like a weird component to this. The documentary doesn't get into super a lot that I'm really curious about with Jamie's relationship with this Lou Taylor lady. And Toby, this is like a theme that we keep seeing in a lot of things that we're watching. Um, And we see these interviews with Lou Taylor where she's sort of nodding over and over and over again to Jamie Spears Christianity and these families like strong Christian values. And I get like we've seen so many things of this in a row where this like prosperity gospel vibe is used to like justify these schemes. I don't know. I, did you get a whiff of that too? Or am I alone and feeling like here we go again? With a whiff like- of that. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, you're fumigated. Yeah. I, you know, there's that sort of He's a, a Jesus person, and he loves God and all this stuff, and then sends a thing saying, by the way, you owe me $500,000 for last year's work, when in <laughs> fact, Brittany wasn't doing anything because she was being kept under lock and key. 
She's a creepy figure. And when that one woman, I can't remember her name, but she seems fairly sincere, somewhat older woman. I, she was maybe Brittany's manager or something. Oh, the assistant so lady? Like, yeah, Felicia she's like, I'm not gonna, Felicia, I'm yes. not going to say anything about her. <laughs> <she's> yes. gonna, <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'm going to avoid that Poor one. Felicia. You know, Felicia cannot afford to defend herself in a lawsuit. She was like, nope, not saying that. Nope, not saying that. Who is Lou Taylor? I will not touch that one. Sorry. She would chew me up and spit me out. <laughs> she was one of my favorite characters. So, so, by the way, was Tony, the conservatorship attorney, who was like, that's bananas. Nope, that's bananas. <laughs> <laughs> See, but that's what they, I, my feeling is, like, that guy, Tony, like, they just needed more of that. Because I, I felt like there was a lot of contextualization that would have really helped understand what was going on. Because the way it's kind of presented is... That, you know, it's like this diabolical plot, and there's really no way for Brittany to get out of it. And it just raises all these questions, at least for me, which is, you know, how did it get this way in the first place? How does she keep going in front of judges? And with all the, like, things that are public about what she's doing, Mm -hmm. how is a judge constantly saying, oh, yeah, no, she's totally, she's suffering from dementia. She can't handle any of these things herself. And then how is it, how can a person who's in her situation, how does a person in that situation go about proving that they don't have dementia? Like what, like what ways do you do that? Or how do you tell the court that you don't trust the people who are your conservators? So there's all these things that I was like, well, how would this work? And they have about two or three minutes of this one guy pushing back and being like, ah, that's messed up. That's messed up. But it would have been good to ask him a few more questions. It's just like, how can this happen? Yeah. Because that's not really explained. It's ex- just explained that it did happen. We can see how the lawyers and the outside people can attempt it. We are left wondering how come the judges and the the neutral arbiters also let it go on. Yeah. And I'm watching it. And even though it's a different type of case, I'm thinking of of it from sort of the perspective of having been in that criminal defense world where you're like entitled to this right to defend yourself and you should have somebody advocating for you. And seeing something like this that is so just completely opposite from that sort of acceptable, fair process it does make you get sucked up into the conspiracy of it because you're like, how can like is somebody getting paid off? Is that where the, some of this money's going? You know, like that is, what's the that is how it felt because she had that uh, that uh, attorney Adam Streisand who seemed like extremely competent. Mm-hmm. He was there. He made the, and he was shut down and like told to leave. And yeah. he was like, right. I guess I. It just it shows like when I said like weird Hollywood stuff and you described it as like the LLC thing, Laura, like setting up the yeah. weird business. Yeah, it reminds me of like those weird situations that you hear of, really only among like extremely rich people and in Hollywood, where like an adult like adopts another adult like for tax reasons. Oh, right? Yes, yes, yeah, right, yeah. yes. Like yeah, it yeah. felt very much like this is a system that only exists for like 12 people to use. That's what it felt like. Well, It, it, it is so me, fucked up. Yeah. It reminded me of the Woody Allen thing where the kids went to the Yale, that yes. Yale Institute, and mm-hmm. they were basically absolving him. And it was like, what? Anyway, have you guys seen I Care So Much? Have you seen that movie? No. No. It's with the actress who was in um, Gone Girl, but it's basically right. all about this. It's about a woman who becomes Rosamund a conservator- Pike? Yeah, she becomes a conservator to all these old people and basically bilks them out of all their money. But mm. she it's just all about this system and about it's like a dark comedy. 
yeah, that happened in Exeter. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure financial planner did. Dude, the yeah, guy that, who won the Megabucks took the old lady's money. That's going to be in the d- d- Dead two. on Deadline <laughs> book three. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I do want to talk a little bit about um, Jenny Aliscu, the Rolling Stone reporter, because, mm-hmm. you know, it is very easy. She she actually inserts herself and becomes a part of the story. She's covering Britney for a long time. She's many interviews with Britney for Rolling Stone, right? And so she's a journalist and she's doing these interviews and she's a journalist. And then she finds herself in another position to be a journalist again and do a profile of Britney. And she is, you know, basically stonewalled. And she's like, you have to submit all the questions to Britney's dad because he's now the conservator. So she's now in a position, and I'm sorry, I'm framing the question in a way that's not really a journalism question because I think it's fucked up, the position she was put in, where she's now put in a position where she can no longer do real journalism, where she's like, you have to screen your whole interview through this weird, fucked up lens. So she decides to go rogue and try to help a fellow human being and go into a bathroom and pass Brittany a document to sign to sort of try to help her out in a legal situation, which, as we all know, is a journalistic line that she chose to cross. Um, And I went into the stall and I closed the door and I got the papers ready and got the pen ready and saw her tattoo on her foot or ankle or whatever it is and opened the door and I showed her the spots where she needed to sign. That being said, I see the journalistic line also being crossed when she is told as a journalist, you can't do your job because the conservatorship is blocking you. Wait, those are two separate they issues are, though, right? They- but I also see the human being part of it. I do. Yeah. I do. And I see also that doing a profile of a celebrity is very different than doing investigative reporting. I see a lot of aspects of this here. Mm-hmm. I just want to get Laura's thoughts on that first. Laura... It is complicated. It's not like Ronan Farrow stuff. We're talking about a celebrity profile and a person who's a human being yes. who's worked with a subject for a long time yeah. who has also seen firsthand what this conservatorship is doing to this person. Yeah. I'm not defending it. I just I see would it as it. more complicated. I, I, I mean, what do you it think? Is, yeah. Well, it is complicated, but I think I definitely, having worked in like a small town as a journalist, get involved way more than I should in things because you can't help it sometimes because you are a human being and it just feels like that's the right thing to do if you hear about something. So, of course, I loved the intrigue of that whole scene, like, go in, walk in this room, go in this bathroom. And it was like so choreographed. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Um, There's her tattooed foot. And she slides it under. I'm like, ooh, the intrigue. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I feel like the thing that I found so sad about this whole, you know, situation where the journalist is the one who is helping her and feels like it was so clear to everybody that she had nobody around her that was actually looking out for her. When you look at like who's she picking up that's that's like befriending her and advocating for her, the paparazzi, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. First of all, I don't think that Jenny should have done that. It was not her place to do that. It was her choice, but, though. Okay, no. It's not something you would have done, is what you're saying. Right, and I wish that Aaron had maybe pressed her a little bit on that. Uh, she certainly, Jenny certainly felt emotional talking about it, so I know it meant a lot to her to do it. But Lara's right. It indicates, and we've seen this throughout the documentary, that Brittany reaches out to people who are just on the outside of her bubble. Yep. The paparazzi guy, the guy she meets at a bar, you become my manager. K-Fed. The, the direct K-Fed, I guess. Yeah. He was a dancer, like in the background. Right, the, the cinematographer for that other documentary and also the reporter for Rolling Stone. It's almost like she's like in a, a jail and she's whispering through the window, <laughs> psst, 
hey, come over. Psst, help. Just somebody just close enough. Out. Yeah, just throw something out. And you have to do this. I mean, you have to run and tell everybody that about, you know, go on TV and read my letter and all this other stuff. Whereas one would assume there is a confidant inside the bubble. But they're all rotten. They're all rotten. But I'm saying there is probably not a confidant inside the bubble. She needs to find somebody. And it's just the people that are just far out enough for her to reach. I think it just says a little bit about where she is. I thought two things when I kept hearing those stories. It was a pattern, Toby. I kept thinking that over and over again, too. Like, she keeps reaching people just on the outside. And by the way, I do think Federline was probably one of those people. He was just on the outside. Backup dancer, right? They were new for for a very short time. And like... She's like the ring where you have to, like, have somebody watch the videotape. Otherwise, it's going to be on you. I don't know. But it's like... But she's always reaching... Yeah, it's always like reaching like right on the like with the paparazzi story. The guy was incredible. Right. And they were together like like he helped her pump gas. And then it was like. So anyway, she's always reaching people just on the outside. So it says two things. One is that she knows that everyone in her inner circle is rotten. and She can't trust anybody. Right. It also reminds me, by the way, a lot of Richard Simmons. Mm-hmm. We heard in Missing Richard Simmons and mm-hmm. a lot of the same stuff. He had people in his inner circle, very few of them. And then he'd meet somebody like in his aerobics class and like that person would become his best friend. Right. Like mm-hmm. we heard yeah. that. It's very similar things. That's like this very like huge celebrity can't like very tiny circle and then randomly like this person but then he never left the house meantime britney is going on tour right well yeah. she, she had to she had, had to make to. money for her dad yeah the other thing that that i kept thinking about toby is that like the other theme that kept popping out is that like all of these people we hear from the you know we hear from the lawyer we hear from the uh cinematographer andrew we hear from sam we hear from the attorney we hear from the paparazzo adnan we hear from all people that come into close, quick contact with her, she's obviously an incredibly sympathetic, lovely, dynamic, wonderful person. And it's it's like not just about her being famous and rich, that like, people want to help. Like there's something about her that is magnetic. And I, I feel like we hear it at the end of the documentary. We hear her voice like I don't really feel like we know. I don't really know Britney Spears as a human being. I see her in music videos and I listen to her music and that's just the celebrity gloss. But there's something about her as a human being that when people meet her, they want to help. Or they, I mean, I don't know. Did, did you get the sense of that? Because you see all these people from different walks of life who meet her and instantly are just like, yes, I will help you. Yes, I will marry you. Yes, I will be your boyfriend. Yes, I, as a reporter, I will cross that line for you. Well, it seems like there's a lot of people who want to save her. Yeah. Was my impression. And I think part of that is liking her, finding her magnetic and stuff. But it seems like all these people feel like she's in a situation where somebody needs to help extricate her or at least support her in a way that she's not getting from where she is. So that I, I kind of, it kind of seemed, and again, it's, you're, you're watching a documentary and these people are, t- you get like six minutes of these people talking about their relationships with her and stuff. But it did seem that like Adnan, he seemed like he was kind of like, confidant slash bodyguard slash running interference with her dad you know it it just it seemed like he had these roles that were quite a bit different than what you would normally expect with like celebrity boyfriend and even like these guys and i think particularly the men who were friends with her there is that sense that they, they they really needed to protect her and that their main feeling later is sort of regret that they couldn't do more for her and that they weren't able to save her from the situation that she was in. I didn't think this was a great documentary. I thought that part of it was striking. Yeah. 
So, Kevin, we should mention this documentary came out just before big news broke about the Britney versus Spears case where Jamie Spears was removed in the conservatorship, right? So he is no longer in control, and that happened literally days after this thing dropped. Right, but I still think the conservatorship exists. In some, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. Strange. yeah she's not... Comp- but she got engaged, so good yes, for her. Yes, and I'm sure that the world still will be watching, so she's not completely free of the cage. Let's just be real, right? Right. All right. So I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Britney versus Spears on Netflix? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this documentary? Um, I'm going to go thumbs up because once I watched this and heard about Jamie Spears and saw him up close, my daily rage walks went up to like three miles or more a day. So (laughs) if you need some rage walking material, I would say definitely, you know, this is an hour and a half. It's a good overview. It definitely presents a more human side and a softer way of describing Britney than we've seen in sort of the tabloid press where you're only getting the super sensational version. So I thought it was uh, it was interesting and um, definitely fired up those rage walks. Toby Ball. So I'm going to say there was one scene that I thought was one of the more remarkable scenes I've seen in a documentary recently, which is, I think it's Britney's in an ambulance and they're taking her mm. to a hospital, and the mm-hmm. paparazzi is surrounding this this ambulance and running after it and shooting through the window, and it's insane. It, it really is insane. And I thought that was it was an incredible scene. It probably lasts for twenty or thirty seconds, but it, it's really something. Uh, beyond that, this just really felt really surface to me. Uh, you could tell that the people who made the documentary care a lot about Britney, so I don't want to make it seem like they didn't have their heart in it or whatever. It just seems like you're kind of told this story, and it felt like there was a lot of really interesting stuff that they could have put in around it to help you understand what was going on a little bit better, rather than what it is. It's sort of like this morality story. That being said, it's put together well. It, it's not slow. It moves along. So I give it a, a, a sort of mild thumbs up. I think it's a rare thing where if it could have been like 20 minutes longer and they could have spent a little bit of time talking about some of the really interesting issues I think that get brought up by this, I think it could have been really good. So yeah, just mild thumbs up. Kevin Flint. I'm going thumbs up. Uh, I agree with Toby mentioned this, that it does raise a lot of questions, but doesn't answer all of them. It is very thought provoking. I'm not necessarily a big Britney Spears fan and I wasn't following the news closely But I did understand what was going on, at least I thought. And this was very enlightening. And I was definitely rage watching because I don't go walking. You know, sorry, Lara. I'm just going to rage. You can come walk with me anytime. I'm just going to rage on the couch. He can come walk with me and he doesn't. Why would he walk with you? Just going to say it. Jeez. I don't know. He might I'm see hanging fruit in the woods with his little hat on. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it's it's uh, certainly th- there are musicians who live with mental illness, very famous ones, Brian Wilson and Ray Davies from the Kinks and Sinead O'Connor. And look, we're trying to normalize mental illness. It's obvious that she has a mental illness of some kind and well, we don't have a place in the world for her. It's either she's got dementia and she needs to be controlled like she's in a zoo or uh, she's wild and out there or or whatever. It, the world has not been particularly nice to Britney Spears. Poor, rich girl. And I think this documentary does a good job of showing us behind the scenes, 
showing us the paper trail of how it got that way. So it's a cautionary tale. Thumbs up. Yeah, I really like this documentary. I'm going to give it a, a really nice thumbs up. I think it takes a particularly feminist take on the story, which I really, really appreciated. It's really warm. It's really lovely. It's very reverential, which I really appreciated. And it does. You know, it's really interesting that it came out when all the news broke. I feel like if it had come out and all the news wasn't breaking, we would have been watching it through a very different lens. Maybe it would have felt like a little bit more shocking because, you know, the tips and the news, like it was very much already in the headlines. So the revelations were things I had read somewhat. So getting them through this lens of this documentary, you know, when I maybe heard them like an NPR a couple of days before, they didn't land the same except that Aaron's sensitivity and, 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 and like the emotion with which she handled them, they did punch in a different way. Uh, but if I hadn't heard them in NPR before, they would have punched like doubly. You know what I mean? So just the timing, I, I, I just I, I wish it had come out like two weeks before just because of that reason. But I, I really liked it. And I do have more questions for these lawyers. And I do have more questions about how this could have happened. And Kevin, you just named a couple of musicians that have severe mental illness, documented mental illness. I believe it's my opinion that Britney has treatable like probably very very common like spectrum of what a lot of people commonly deal with and it hit her at an age that's very commonly dealt with because she is very very highly functional she's able to work she's able to earn an incredible living she's able to teach people incredible choreography she's she's not like missed a beat in her career and these people were predators and like completely used her so they could enrich themselves. And that is disgusting. And we saw the full breadth of that in this documentary. And for that reason, I got to give it a big thumbs up. Big thumbs up for me for Britney versus Spears. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Kevin, here we are in the business section, and we're going to kick it off with a nod to last week's business section. Kevin. You mean an apology? Yes, an apology to one of our Patreon patron saints of the week. What you got to say, Kevin? Oh, well, one of our patron saints, I said her name was Aaliyah. Yes. And even though it's spelled that way, it's pronounced differently. So I would like to apologize to my friend Aliyah. Yes. And uh, thank her for uh, sticking with us, even though I mangled that name. By the way, it's not the first nor the last name. I will completely mangle. No, right. I mean, hey, I'm still here, and, um, you know. I'm, I'm still never so talking about very hard to say, to say Lara. <laughs> Lara. So, no. no, it's not, not Laura. Not, Lara. Not for nothing, Lara, but sometimes you mangle your own fucking name. Just gonna I know. Throw yeah. it out I know. There. <laughs> I know. So. <laughs> hey, you. Cat detection. So. So coming up on the Crime Writers on After Show, uh, we're going to catch up on our TV watching and talk about our thoughts on Only Murders in the Building. See how it's going. I cannot wait to talk about that. What else are we doing, Kevin, on the uh, Crime Writers on Patreon feed right now? Toby's going to come out uh, later this month with a new round of books for the Deep Dive Book Club. Mm. So Toby, tell us about what your next title is and uh, who's going to be on with you. 
The next title uh, is called Beast in View by Margaret Miller. It's Miller, M-I-L-L-A-R. And, uh, Miller. Miller, whatever. <laughs> you're going to have to, you're, I don't, I'm not you're just, gonna I'm not, have to initiate an apology to her. Listen, I'm not saying it's not Miller. I'm just saying the way I would pronounce it to, to <laughs> signal how it was spelled is Miller. <laughs> Do you have any other comments you want to make before I continue? No, with that no, keep going. <laughs> keep on I'm going, Toast. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, so the reason why I actually picked this is because I was on Twitter and I saw that uh, multiple award-winning suspense author Alex Segura Ooh. said it was mm. his favorite crime novel. So I said, that sounds good to me. So I picked it, and uh, Alex is going to be join me. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. He had no choice at that point. He is joining me and Kimberly from Date with Dateline. Yay, Kimberly from Date with Dateline. That sounds like a great panel. And Toby, since we're going to be talking about Only Murders in the Building on the after show, can we also talk about the joke on the Only Murders in the Building that was definitely about you? We're going to talk about that, right? Uh, sure, yeah. 100%. All right, so Kevin, anything else we've got going on on our uh, Patreon right now? Yeah, we're going to have a new episode coming up of Leave it to Bricker, and Laura is on the search for hidden tunnels in nice. the town of Exeter. Nice. Yeah. Good they're places called to hide. sewers. No, there's a hidden <laughs> network of tunnels. I've actually discovered two networks, and I'm thinking they're a good spot to chuck a body. Huh. Oh, for f- fuck's sake. I All noticed right. something on our script. <laughs> yeah. So, like, only murders in the building people, like, abbreviating on Twitter is, like, O-M-I-T-B. Yeah. I've seen on your script that you're calling Leverage Bricker L-I-T-B. Like, we're trying to class it up here, right? Lippy? Yeah, it's Yeah, no one's going to know. Yeah. That's, that's just internal work product, Rebecca. I don't know. It's pretty great. So, Kevin, what else have we got going on? I just want to let folks know two things. As uh, you may know, Rebecca is the host of Netflix's You Can't Make This Up podcast. Her next episode, she's going to be talking with Aaron Lee Carr, who's the director, as we said, of Britney versus Spears. So maybe she'll get to ask some of those questions. Yes, yeah, so we actually haven't taped that interview as of this taping, so I have questions. Now you have questions. And uh, I am now, uh, for this season, the host of Undisclosed Addendum. Yes! Ooh! Ooh so, Kevin! Big news. And oh, season wow. six is about the state versus Jason Carroll. And okay. that state is the state of New Hampshire. Yes. Oh, my gosh. And so, oh, my gosh. This is amazing. Yeah, so I'm able to bring some new perspectives to the season as, as a former journalist here in the state. We should talk about that a little bit in the after show, but we yeah. will say this season of Undisclosed, Kevin is covering the addendum because this is a New Hampshire case and you will know a lot about it as a journalist who was working as a journalist when the case was happening. And yeah, it's about a potential wrongful conviction. I think I do a fairly decent job doing You're an amazing right, job yeah, yeah. as a host. Yes, but <laughs> it's a potential wrongful conviction right here in the state, which people don't believe exists here in New Hampshire. And that is an issue that, that, is an uh, issue. that Rabia is looking into. Rabia is wow. peeling the onion. It's yeah. going to shake up the legal system. Yeah. Lastly, I uh, want to encourage everybody to sign up for our Crime Writers On newsletter. It's absolutely free. Go to CrimeWritersOn.com. It's rad. Put your email in there. You're going to find out all sorts of stuff. You'll find out what's coming up next week, and you'll see photos of the Cat of the Week and all of our crazy merch, and I can't believe people are buying those leggings. Oh, my God. But, all right. Listen, I know the no, business section- No, I'm not winding you up on this, these leggings again. I know it's gone on for a minute, but can we just say, I knew it. If I wore these stupid leggings, maybe like one other person would buy them, and like one other person did. Did they not? Yes, I have to say it was more than one other person. It, the leggings are they're comfortable. They're Do ugly. they have to size- like up, or are they accurate no, size? No, they're true to size, and okay. they're very buttery. 
They're like my favorite leggings now. I'm not kidding. They're ugly as hell. No yeah. offense, Kevin. He made them on purpose to be ugly. Like, they're not ugly. Like, you yeah. made them on purpose I, ugly. Yeah, and I checked the pattern. So, don't there's no cat coming out of your kitty, if you no. know what I mean. Yeah, they are <laughs> comfy as hell and on purpose ugly. And I love them. They're my new favorite leggings. No, I challenge no you all. coming out of your kitty, Kevin. Oh my you know God. what yeah. I would like to see? I want listeners to send us pictures of them wearing them so we can put them in future newsletters. Would that yes. be weird? I don't think they want to. That would be very weird. Let's do it. I'm ordering mine right right now. All right, Kevin. Before we end the business section, do we have any Patreon patron saints of the week this week? Our Patreon patron saints are Juliet Kelly and Jim Dubois. Bless you. Bless you guys. And thus ends the the business business section. section. Is that Dubois or Dubois? Du Bois, B-O-Y-C-E. Yeah, it's definitely Du Bois. Du Bois. Yeah. yeah. No, no mistaking that one. No no, mistaking. Okay. I was like, oh boy, here we go again. <laughs> 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 and we are going to pick out a picture of Toby in those leggings, 100%. Yeah. All right. Moving on. What I knew initially about Sean was that he had a shaved head and wore polished boots and seemed to carry it like nothing scared him. And he seemed willing to die for his beliefs. But is that what got him killed? When clashes between left and right-wing activists hit Portland streets, Sean Kellier was often there. The young anti-fascist protester could be found in the middle of violent showdowns with Nazis and with the police. Then, in October of 2019, two men in a car struck Kellier during a political confrontation before fleeing. She was sent to a sterile waiting room filled with other friends of Sean had gotten word of what happened. Sean was hit by a car. Then the chaplain came in. And as soon as the chaplain came in, I knew that meant. Despite eyewitnesses, security footage, and the abandoned car used in the deadly attack, Kellier's murder investigation went cold. Now his mother and his Antifa compatriots believe the police are intentionally leaving the case unsolved because of the victim's politics. Do you know how many Leo or law enforcement Sites that I went through and they were celebrating my son's death. In Fault Line, Dying for a Fight from Something Else and Oregon Public Broadcasting, host Sergio Almos probes the investigation of Sean's death. He takes us inside the many street brawls and chaotic protests in one of the nation's most politically charged cities. The series asks whether police are just stymied by what appears to be a solvable case or are they hoping to use the killing to disrupt the anti-law enforcement movement? We are going to be talking about plot points for the first five episodes of Fault Line. So to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down reviews. Now, Toby, it's really interesting to me because Antifa has been a word that has been so mischaracterized and misidentified and politicized in the last few years in political discourse, right? And here we are talking about Sean and his friends and his fellow protesters in Portland. And they are legitimately Antifa, an anti-fascist group who proudly and strongly identify as anti-racist, anti-fascist protesters, right? This is what they do. They go out, they protest. I was very, very struck in particular by his mother's characterization of him as a kid growing up and his conscious decision to adopt this as his identity and his choice to become an activist. And we learned this early in the podcast. And for me, 
it is just it's just it's just striking. It, it doesn't frame it as political. It frames it as identity. Do you do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Well, the so there's this story where where Sean and his mother were living with I think her father and stepmother, and then when her father died, or maybe it was her grandfather. Her grandfather, yeah. Her grandfather died. They went from living sort of this upper middle class existence. And the step-grandmother was like, you know, you, you guys aren't living here anymore. And then they became quite poor and lived in, in a what they say is a pretty rough neighborhood or whatever. And sort of the lesson that Sean took from that was that the system doesn't work. It doesn't work for poor people. And it was sort of that like perception or realization that sort of defined his outlook on the world and the way he interacted with the world. And so he kind of took that insight and did a lot of reading to form a intellectual framework through which to kind of understand it and to try and uh, make sense of it. And that kind of informed his actions. And from a pretty young age, I mean, in his teens, he was out on the streets in protests. And, you know, I think is like what a lot of people would look at him and say he was radicalized, but he was sort it's, of self, he was sort of self-radicalized. Yeah. And it's it's really, it reminds me of the podcast we listened to recently about racist skinheads, right? And these are like anti-racist skinheads uh, and Antifa anti-racist that we hear about. And it is hard for me, and I will acknowledge this, even though Sean embraces extremist tactics in his protest activities, it is hard for me to not like a kid who is out there fighting against literal Nazis and literal racists when he's like 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18 years old. It's hard. And then when you hear him putting an oxygen mask on a woman in a protest, showing up at the hospital for someone he doesn't know. So I see him juke my left side, comes down the road, rips off his fucking rebreather, puts it in her hand, says, put it on, and just dips. Never met this girl once in his life. I mean, I found myself like very, very torn because it's like, yeah, you want to say to this kid, oh my God, just tone it down you're a kid like oh you're doing things that are dangerous but also like he's also he's not like wrong about the way he's thinking the way he feels but he's putting himself in some very dangerous situations right yeah i mean it's an interesting character study as somebody who is in that lifestyle in true crime you know we care for all victims but sometimes it's hard to like a victim you know, Sean stood for all the right things, but he doesn't come to the story with clean hands, right? He isn't just protesting out there. The kind of protest they espouse is much more confrontational and physical and can become violent. And, you know, I'm not 100% comfortable with, with that, although I, I agree with everything they stand for. So I, I'm not sure how I feel about Sean. Now, maybe if the victim in the true crime case were a burglar or something like that, you'd say, oh, well, that doesn't make a difference. And it shouldn't make a difference in this case. It shouldn't make a difference whether or not the police solve his case. That's the important thing. But I just, um, yeah, I mean, the the, the background of, of this story, of the crime, is very heavy. And, you know, I don't know if it's for all people. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, it's it's not a society murder, right? It's not a white glove slaying. It's a killing, you know, in a very chaotic street with 
two really antagonistic factions, you know, doing a, a street war, you know. So, and and the political overtones are some of the heaviest stuff that we that we're dealing with in society right now. So you have to be able to want to dig into that and be exposed to that to get to this story. It's an important story. I think it's told very well. Yeah. I just think there's a lot around it that may be a barrier for everyone who wants to enjoy it. I see. So what you're saying isn't that like you think that like Sean and the alt-right people are the same. You're saying that oh, some people no. might not be able to get no, through no, that no, to no, get no. to the story. Okay, get no, it. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. It. But it takes place in a, you know, in a, a, a very uh, rough emotional yes, place yes. for a lot of people, right? I get it. I get you know? it. Yep. No, no, I totally get what yeah. you're saying. I just wanted to give you the chance to clear that up. Yeah. Because I do think that the police I mean, we hear in the podcast, I mean, Laura, we hear that the police and this is the problem with trust there is that we hear that this police guy even like wrote this book where he characterized this war on the streets that has long been going on in Portland. That was it is a ray, a true racist instigated race war in Portland he describes it as a gang war, like as if it's a both sidesism, right? Like people murdering black people because they're racist. And he's like, it's a gang war. He's like, he's describing it as, as if the anti-racists are the same as the racists. That's not what it is. It's not both sidesism. Um, and that's not what we're talking about here, right? No. And I think when you hear about something that ingrained in a state's identity, and then you hear about that mischaracterization of what is happening with this situation on the streets being classified, like you said, as a gang war, you see that, I mean, it's so deeply rooted for so long that it's almost an impossible situation at this point in terms of actually getting past that, it feels like, listening to it. Yeah. One of the things I love about this podcast, Laura, is like I feel and hear the local reporting here. I mean, I know that OPB, Ryan Haas, who's one of the producers on this show, was one of the producers on Bundyville, which is one of our favorite podcasts. It was one of my favorite podcasts. I don't want to speak for you guys that we've ever covered on this show. Uh, he's an OPB reporter producer. And you hear, especially I think episode five, which is one of the episodes we're talking about in our coverage here, uh, which we heard an early release of. Uh, does some local reporting with some of the cops here. And it's, I think, one of the strongest episodes in the series. You hear that they've been covering this story for a really long time. Um, mm -hmm. You also hear the threat of Laura, uh, Sean's mom, like, and her sort of journey throughout this. Talk to me about what you hear when you hear this and the difference between sort of like an, a national reporter helicoptering in versus the local angle and the relationships that are formed with local reporters. Okay, so yeah, I mean, I think there is definitely something to be said for having somebody that's on the ground, like boots on the street in an area for a long period of time, which gives you the ability to form those relationships with your sources so that you're at this different level of trust with them. I mean, if you're living in that community, you're seeing people around town, you might, you know, if it's a small area where you're working and you're seeing people and you're in there regularly, people start to recognize you, they start to trust you, and they start to open up more. And I think that's what you're hearing is that level of trust and back and forth between those local people who are on the ground and, you know, even some of the police. But I think with with Laura, when she's in that scene where the, that last episode, we have the altercation and she like stops somebody and she's 
happy about it. And I think that was a big thing to reveal. I mean, it felt very, you know, to have the trust to reveal that you actually were happy to stomp somebody. Because here we're talking about getting rid of this violence, and it's just the violence just keeps perpetuating at that point. Toby, can you talk about the local reporting angle in this podcast? Because I think I think it's pretty stunning that like there is so much understanding of the setting and the scene and the politics here. Yeah, well, I've followed Ryan and Sergio on Twitter for a while uh, because, you know, during the previous administration, when all that stuff was going on in Portland, their Twitter feeds were like how I followed it. And they're, yep. they're in the middle of it day after day after day. You know, there's nobody who's going to know more about it than they do. And you can just tell. I mean, they, they talk to um, the Patriot Prayer, um, and he knows who they are. And they talk to him. And, you know, there's no question about whether they understand what they're talking about. And I think, I just thought they made a lot of really good choices in this to help you sort of understand what was going on. They spend a fair amount of time talking about the relationship between Sean and a sort of more conventional liberal democratic organizer is actually a couple and their relationship. And then also, I mean, that couple is very open about where they and Sean disagreed and what they do that Sean would have disagreed with and where that disagreement comes from, which is in large part that they thought that, you know, you work within the system to change things. And Sean thought that the system like the problems with the system weren't fixable by the system. Like you have to tear the system down in order to address these problems of race and and wealth disparity and things like that. It was fucking hard. Like It was really hard. (laughs) Like how big is the tent here going to be, right? I felt as though I was in hands I could trust to give me a real picture of what was going on rather than somebody who was going down and sort of giving you what their perceptions of what was going on if they hadn't been so immersed in it for for so long. I totally agree. Can I tell you what I think is like really great and stunning about this? Ryan and Sergio, so I saw on Twitter after one of the first episodes came out with the Patriot Prayer guy and some of the other right-wing people, they got a lot of pushback from people who were like, why did you put these guys in here? Why did you elevate their voices? Why did you not immediately point out that they're like racist and fascist or whatever? And I saw Ryan and Sergio just being like, because first of all, they're in the story. They're part of the story. And like, they're characters in the story. And also like, hold on, just listen, right? And then I hear in continuing episodes, They are extremely, they do not do this naive thing, which was one of my huge criticisms of shows like the Improvement Association, for instance, where it's naive, where it's like, wait, is this racism? Is this this? They straight up say when they're interviewing another one of these members of these right wing organizations where, okay, they'll say this on tape. But they they use this. They say this as a tactic. They they are guileless on tape, but they and and they use this. They use these word games. But when they actually post these videos, this is actually a tactic. And they do this, this, and this. They cut through all of the bullshit. They let these guys do rhetoric on tape, but then they tell you, the listener, like what is actually going on. And they're not afraid. They don't let it sit. They don't shy away from saying fascist. They don't shy away from saying racist. They don't shy away from characterizing people by what they have done and who they are. And so 
I don't mind them putting the voices in the show because they tell you and show you who they are because they know because they've done the reporting. It's not their opinion. They show you. And I just think it's really good journalism and bold and brave. And because they're local, they can do it. And if they flew in, they might be afraid to do it or they might be they might do it and they might do it irresponsibly. Um, Kevin, I have a question for you about the actual crime. Okay. Because the cops here are actually obviously in the spotlight. And this is another great, like, local journalism thing because they've been covering these cops for a long time. They have the car. Right. They They left the car at the scene. And two people ran out and ran away. They have footage. Footage, witnesses. Yes. What do you think is going on here? That That's what I'd like to know. That I mean, maybe I missed it or maybe they just haven't gotten to it yet. But why can they not connect anyone with the car or at least those that they can? I mean, they have the registration. It's not like, in a, you know, literally an abandoned car. It just seems like there is definitely enough there to focus on a suspect. Well, because Sean's friends haven't come forward, Kevin. Well, OK. <laughs> all right. Couple of, there are a couple of things here, though, right? I mean, it's there's definitely enough there that they could have a suspect. Whether there's enough that they can make an arrest and bring it, you know, I, th- th- there's always something like that where there's like, yes, we have this, but we need that. And we're not going to say that we need that, but we definitely need that. And that could be it. One of the theses of the podcast is that are they intentionally not solving it? And I mean, even Sergio says like, you know, that's like, yeah, it sounds like crazy stuff, but here's a reason why it could be true. I've been doing true crime for a while, and they're not the first family to feel like the reason their case hasn't been solved is because the cops don't want to solve it. So, yeah, I, do, I don't know. I'm just I'm not really buying the idea that, the you know, there's a political motivation for not doing it. Right. But we have seen. Yeah. In the in this sphere. Again and again and again. I think you listen to Bundyville and you know Mm -hmm. that when it comes to these factions and when it comes to protesters on the left and on the right in this part of the country, that there is a faction that is very safe from law enforcement action no matter what they do. We've seen it again and again Mm -hmm. and again and again. I don't know what it takes, a standoff, shootings, to I don't know what it takes. We've seen it actually. These same reporters sure. have covered stories where law enforcement has not acted. Sure, sure. And I'll just say that, yes, but that is an evidence that they're not doing that, right? That they're intentionally not solving the case. There might the case, be a different right? reason why they have not yet arrested these actual exactly. suspects. There might not. There might be a different reason. Exactly. So I'm just not I, I'm just not on board. Maybe you guys are, but I'm just not on board I'm with that. I'm not on board with reason. that specific yeah. theory, but I do think it is interesting that one theory was posited and that the cop did not say anything that countered that theory. He seemed nice. I'm not saying he didn't seem nice. He didn't seem nefarious. Yeah. But, but he can also. Just, but just as a side note, can I just say there's a lot of great tape in this. Yeah. yeah. Before before we run out of time, I want to say, you know, thumbs up for like bringing. It's, it's probably a bunch of YouTube stuff, but bringing this, the sounds from right inside a lot of these confrontations. You know, it really brings you there. For around 30 minutes, anti-fascists and Patriot Prayer stood in the street outside Siderite, facing off, shouting at each other. Just the street fights and yeah. the like, you know, 
we're going to have two guys in single combat, you know, single warrior combat, fight it out. Go Nazi, go Antifa. Yes, well, I'm the winner. The you good know, news is, is Nazis love to tape things. Yeah. <laughs> they okay. really do. You always but, say cults love to tape things. So do Nazis. What are you going to say? Oh, wow. Oh, no, I was going to say, I thought that was great because I feel like that sort of raw tape and that footage really brought it down to the level, for me anyway, as I was walking and listening to it, of what it felt like to be in the middle of that. It was so immersive. Yeah, yeah. Laura, I was really moved by Laura herself as, a you know, the mother. I mm-hmm. mean, she's, you can, her journey where she is really, you know, pushing for justice and she actually does trust the police like for a while. Like she's like, you guys want to solve my son's case. You know, I'm on his side. Like I'm anti-authoritarian, but I believe you. And then she stops believing them. And now that's where she is now. And now she's trusting these journalists. Like she's mm-hmm. like, the police have let me down. I am trusting you. Of course, I'm not trusting you enough where I'm not mm-hmm. going to meet you except anywhere but the secret apartment. In- <laughs> oh, my God. I, I love the secret apartment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So can you talk about that a little bit? The secret apartment? Yeah. I just thought Laura, that was- yeah. And Laura, yeah. I mean, the secret apartment was, I thought, just another window into the sort of volatility and that exists in this area, in this region right now. And that you really do have to be careful because it's such an emotionally charged issue on all fronts that you have to rent a secret apartment if you're going to go interview anyone because no one needs to be seen talking about this. Um, I mean, now the word is out. But I think that character of Laura, listening to her and what you were kind of talking about earlier, Rebecca, is like a parent of a kind of socially engaged teenager, I'm like, oh, my God, my kid is totally going to be doing something like this someday, you know, if he's not doing it already. (laughs) And I'm listening to how she, like, made them snacks when they were going out on their protests and, like, gave them little sandwiches. And I'm like, oh, my God. She keeps whole milk on hand for the pepper spray attacks. Yes. Yes. And I was like, is this is this my life? This is going to be. But but in listening to it, you can really relate to her as a parent if you have children that are interested in what's going on in the world and get fired up about things. And so, you know, I just thought listening to the setup of her own childhood and how that played into that sort of parenting style and you know, that closeness that she did have with her son. So then fast forward to the police don't seem to be doing anything. She speaks up right after he's killed and says to his friends, don't say anything. Like, we don't want rumors. And everybody respects her because they respected her son because of his role in that community. And they don't say anything. Yeah. And then the case still doesn't get solved. And at that point, it's like all bets are off. Everybody can say what they want type thing. But it was like, her level of trying to do it the right way and just not getting anywhere was extremely frustrating. Yeah. Toby, you just one final note. You made a note about this podcast being visceral. And I think you're probably nodding to what Kevin said about a lot of the tape here, because I feel similarly. We hear the street brawls. We actually hear them because Nazis love to tape things. We also hear the train scene where two people got murdered. And we also hear Micah's, you know, trying to defend people on the train and getting stabbed himself. And then we hear him testifying in court. Is that what you're referring to when you talk about this being visceral and and Laura's grief? Are you talking about the politics? Like, what are you sort of characterizing here when you use the word visceral? I think there's a lot of things that kind of go into it. It, You know, one of the things I came out of this thinking about is in Sean, you know, politics aside, it's a kid who sees a problem with the system. And that's something, you know, that we've covered again and again and again throughout the course of 
Crime Writers On. It's it's podcast after podcast after podcast about breakdowns in the system and and where this and where people struggle with the system and are done wrong by the system. And it's somebody who sees that and you know whether it's misguided or not wants that system to change. And you know he's an anarchist, and the, the idea being if you can get government out of the way, people will do the right thing for each other. So it's like this kind of idealism that's not the kind of idealism that I think most Americans think about as being idealistic. And then the people that he is confronted with on a daily basis for years are racists. And it's people like Joey Gibson, who's from Patriot Prayer, who are basically there to provoke people like him so that they can get it on film with them acting out all in the the stated goal of preserving the system because it favors white Christian men. I mean, that that's pretty much a stated thing. So for me, like more than most other things, this is the kind of thing that, that kind of gets me feel like rage walking, but I drive my commute and I try not to drive in that, that frame of mind. But, um, <laughs> but it is. I mean, I, th- that's the kind <laughs> of thing that rage. I find. Your, your rage electric driving. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I really but plug I my say, car in. Don't you think also visceral Micah, who's alive? Yeah. Who walks a very different line. He's not on the street playing security, punching people. He does not say... I want justice to burn the place down. I just want to know. And that is so incredibly moving to me. Like he is like one of the most moving characters I've heard in a podcast in a really long time. Like he and Laura. But he's like, he knows, like he clearly has been in a lot of fights. He's a guy who stands up when a big guy is menacing two women on a train. Like he's, he's literally the guy who gets up and says, this has got to stop and gets stabbed for it. So, yeah, it's it's like a different kind of idealism than we were used to thinking about, I think. Yeah. Yep. I, I you know, I find it pretty moving and I and I think just the fact that what they're up against seems like really sort of the worst, you know? Yeah. It's a it's a tough story, definitely. It's hard to call yourself an ally when you hear what these guys do, right? Yeah. All right. I think we should do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out The Fault Line, Dying for a Fight from something else and Oregon Public Broadcasting? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down for this podcast? Um, So I'm going to go thumbs up on this podcast, and I'm going to give a little bit of a caveat, sort of what Kevin was talking about when we were discussing it, is that you know, this probably isn't for everybody. If you're somebody that's still in that stage of, I mean, I had the stage during the COVID times where I was like, I can't watch the news anymore. The world is going crazy. You're probably not going to want to listen to this podcast. However, if you want to have a different perspective about what's been going on in Oregon and actually hear from journalists who have been there on the ground, on the street, covering this and have sort of what I call like institutional memory and knowledge of the situation, this is something you should listen to. So thumbs up. Toby Ball. Uh, This is my favorite podcast this year. Uh, I I think it's really, it's a very, very difficult subject. You know, it's it's taking somebody who identifies as Antifa and trying to bring the reality of what that means for this kid. I think they make a lot of just really smart choices in how they frame things. There's a lot of great tape. The people who are involved in this like know this subject as well as anybody. I don't know. I, I just found the whole thing completely fascinating. I, I realize it's a tough listen, but it's also, I think, really important in a way that a lot of stuff that we review isn't as important in sort of the insight it gives. 
about some of the sort of ideological battles that are going on and the reality behind some of the sort of the words that get kind of tossed around politically that I think have kind of lost their meaning. They're more like sort of scare words than actually describing anything at this point. And I think you get a better sense of like whether you agree or not, you get in a, you get a better sense of it. So I, I just I, I liked everything about this. I, I'm super psyched to listen to the rest of it. So it's it's a big it's about as big a thumbs up as I can give. Kevin Flynn. This wasn't for me. Um I th- I can't give it a thumbs down because there's nothing bad about it. The the journalism is solid. I mean my my review is not worthy of Sergio's work on this. It's it's really good. It's a difficult subject, but it just uh I just really didn't find myself drawn to this. So unfortunately, I'm just going to have to go thumb sideways. Um, I really like this podcast. This is a tough listen. Um, it is really important to cover whiteness in America. It really, really is. You know, we are living in a world where racism is in the forefront. It used to be a fringe thing that newsrooms didn't cover because when someone did something racist, it was like, let's not give it oxygen because it's not something that's on the forefront. It's fringe. It's, you know, if we cover it, then it's giving it oxygen. But guess what? It has oxygen now and we have to cover it. And that means covering white people. And that means covering dynamics between the white people who are perpetuating it and the black people who are victims of it. And it also means covering the white people who are like Sean on the streets, the Antifa people who are being politicized and who are being talked about and mischaracterized and sometimes correctly characterized, depending on which media you're watching. Uh, This is a really important podcast in a lot of ways. Did I like love it? Like, was I entertained by it the same way I would like to talk about a podcast like Suspect? No. Am I going to call my favorite podcast of the year like Toby did? No, I don't feel the same way about it as Toby did. But I have to give it a big thumbs up because it's a journalistic achievement. Um, I also really, really love the choices they made musically, for instance, and mixing wise. And I'm really proud, by the way, that there's a public media organization that's partnered in this because public media organizations are not usually this brave in their journalism. So yeah, thumbs up for me for Fault Line. Um, Good job, Ryan and Sergio, and good job, OPB, for being a part of this. I look forward to listening to the rest of it. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of of the week. Sheriff Mike Blakely says his jail is the best in Alabama, and he ought to know because he just spent two weeks in lockup there. The 10-term Limestone County Sheriff was convicted of embezzlement and spent two weeks in the hole inside of his cozy office. Out now while his case is appealed, Blakely said after he was freed that he's proud of how good his jail is. He says the food is great, the guards are friendly, and the inmates are polite. And of course, he credits himself for the facility's high quality. If Blakely's three-year conviction is upheld, he won't be able to serve his time in the jail he ran for 38 years. The judge ordered he be incarcerated in a county 60 miles away where the food might not be as tasty. So this felonious lawman gave five stars to his own jail. What will he say in his forthcoming Yelp review? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Um, Well, if he's reviewing his next jail after this wonderful treatment, I'm going to read you an actual real review of an Econo Lodge in New Hampshire that I think (laughs) I want. I'm going to read it. And then I want you to sort of think of it as I'm talking about it like it's at the jail. This place is gross and the staff is unorganized. They sent me to an already (laughs) occupied room. 
I felt very uncomfortable with the lack of privacy. When they relocated <laughs> me to a new room, this room was not clean. Stains on sheets, carpets, and curtains. Dried blood on the bathroom tile. And the nice. metal oh. was rusted. Do not stay here. So that's an Econo straight, yes. I think it also sounds like the jail he's going to next. Nice. Timed. James Renner, right? Tell me about what do you think? What is in the sheriff's upcoming Yelp review? I'm supposed to follow that. Um, yes. Cockroaches stand at attention. Kevin Flint. Uh, soap not slippery would recommend. Oh, very, very good. All right. Well, Laura Bricker, we should probably end the show on that note. But before we do, do we have a cat of the week this week? We have something super unusual and I got a message that said something like, if you don't do this as cat of the week, I will kill you. And it's somebody in town. So I had to do it. But it's actually pretty funny. This comes from Caroline Seeky. And this is the crow. Um, it is a crane. Hold on a minute. I got to open it up. The crow. The crowing. So it's a white naped crane named Oh, my God. Walnut. They're so mean. They're so mean, the cranes. Well, wait. So this has killed two males she was paired with and has now fallen in love with the zookeeper, who's a real live human. And Chris, the zookeeper, accepts that he is pretty much married to this bird. And the cranes live to be about 60 and they mate for life. So he knows he can't retire while Walnut is still alive. It is like the worst dysfunctional interspecies relationship I've ever heard of. So... Oh, my goodness. And the picture of the guy standing by the crane, he looks like he's trapped in a prison. So I'm sorry, Chris of the crane. Does he have sex with this bird? No, but his (laughs) Facebook relationship status is it's complicated, right? It's complicated. (laughs) Yes. It says as a result, her keepers believe Walnut does not recognize other cranes as members of her own species. She's murdering. Stuck up crane. Those those birds are huge and she's murdering them. Can you even imagine? Well, it says it has not been proven that she killed her previous suitors. However, there is a persistent rumor in the crane conservation community that she did. Yeah. This is like this is like the staircase. Yeah. She is she's the non Michael Peterson because he didn't do it, Toby, of cranes. All right, Laura Bricker. If folks want to email us at crimewriterson at gmail.com and send their animals to be cat of the week, no matter what kind of animal they can. But in case they want to tweet you, how could they do that? Um, they can find me at Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, if folks want to tweet to you and tell you what their favorite podcasts of the year are, how can they find you on Twitter? Oh, I encourage them to do that, at Toby Ball NH. And Kevin Flynn, what about you? If folks want to tell you what their favorite podcasts are, how can they find you on Twitter? I'm always at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show at Crime Writers On. And please join our amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook group at Crime Writers On on Facebook. We also have a regular old page and you can find the group from there. Support this show at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get the crime writers on after show married with podcast, Laura Bricker's leave it to Bricker podcast and Toby balls deep dive book club podcasts. Our theme song was composed and performed by Ty Gibbons. Our line editor is the very handsome Olivia Burdett. The executive producer of this program is Kevin Flynn. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as 
Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we practice all of the dance moves for our upcoming Las Vegas residency. Oops, I did it again. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We are Toxic, and we'll catch you later. But fuck Steve Martin for not following me. (laughs) Or me. I mean, my God. You guys didn't want it as badly as I did. Let's face it. I wanted it so bad. Now I want it really badly. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking sucks, man. I'm not going to beg Steve Martin. You're not going to be thirsty for it? (laughs) Oh, gross. (laughs) (laughs) Thirsty for it. Partners in crime media. media.